Welcome. We are extremely glad uh, that you are here. Hearing that my sins are flagrant and my guilt is great has never sounded so sweet when Ansley reads it. So maybe we should have had like some booming voice read that and say your sin. Anyway, uh, I was almost encouraged that my sin was so great through hearing her read. But hopefully the point got across um, and that we can look at God's grace this morning. We will be continuing our sermon series called God is the Gospel. Uh, this morning. Uh, it's a, just a 12-week sermon series that we are really diving into. Who does God say that he is in his word? What attributes does he portray? What attribu- attributes does he show us? We understand there are more than 12 of those. Uh, we could preach on this probably the rest of time and the rest of eternity and not cover all of these ex- exhaustively, but we also uh, know that y'all would get tired of that, so we have to switch it up. But th- for the next I guess this is week four, eight weeks. This is what we will be doing. Now, two weeks ago, uh, we talked about God's sovereignty. And as an example of that, he had Pastor Todd preach holiness and me preach grace. And I think we all know that Pastor Todd is definitely holier than I am, and I need way more grace than he does. So there's an example of God's sovereignty at work right there. Um, But today, we are going to be jumping off from Jeremiah chapter 30, uh, as Miss Angeli just read for us so beautifully. Now, the thing is, we will also look at some New Testament scriptures. Most of those will be on the screen, uh, so you won't have to flip there. So keep, keep your Bible turned to Jeremiah 30, and we'll just look at the screen for the other ones. But here's the thing. I think too many times as 21st century or even post-cross Christians, we think the, that grace is just a New Testament idea. We think that it just came along we may even say out loud that, it's a new, that we have the law in the Old Testament and grace in the New Testament. And while that is somewhat true in, in what the two Testaments talk about, grace is mentioned in the New Testament about 120 times. It's mentioned in the Old Testament four. It's about a 25 to 1 ratio. What we don't want to do is confuse the fact that this has always and always will be God's means of saving and delivering His people. It is His grace, even in the Old Testament, that is covering his people, that is saving his people, that is redeeming his people. But before we can really dive into that, we do need to look at the context of where we're at in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Many theologians refer to Jeremiah as the weeping prophet. He's not the happiest dude. If you read his his work, most of his work is not on t-shirts and coffee mugs. You don't see a lot of Jeremiah references. The one exception to that is Jeremiah 29, 11, and y'all are thinking right now, I know that one. Is what, it, what is it? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, right? Everybody wants to quote that, and while I don't knock you for quoting it, I do think it applies to us even now. Most people probably could not identify who that is specifically written to as they put it on their shirts or they put it on their journals or on their coffee mugs or whatever it is. It was written to the exiles of Judah, right? The people of God had been removed from Jerusalem, their capital city, by the Babylonians under the guidance and sovereignty of God. It was punishment for their sins, for them turning away. Jeremiah came along at the very tail end of the reign of King Josiah. King Josiah was the last faithful king of Judah, Uh, Towards the end of his reign, it started going haywire, and he started making some poor decisions and leading the people in bad ways. But he was the last one the Bible refers to as following the ways of the Lord. All the ones after this had kind of 
had definitely turned fully away. And Jeremiah came along at the end of that to tell them, hey, you need to do what Josiah was doing at the beginning of his reign and turn towards Yahweh. He is the one you have the covenant with. He is the one you are to follow. He was trying to warn them, if you don't, it's not going to end well. God cannot allow you to just turn back and not do anything. Not a, not a lot of what he was told to say was happy or received well by the people. Hence, calling him the weeping prophet. He was sent to the people to tell them that God knew the plans he had for them, all right. And it was to be exiled and scattered to all of these other lands that were not their homeland. And 70 years later, I'll restore you. I will bring you back. And this is what Jeremiah came preaching. And nobody liked it. And he was put on trial a few times. He was... He was Hated, he was, he was even threatened to be killed a few times. But why did God say all this? Why was God telling Jeremiah to do this? It's because they had turned away to worship foreign gods. Jeremiah warned them if they did not turn back, a holy God, that was what we learned about last week, cannot just go, eh, no big deal. Come back when you decide to. Come back when it makes more sense to you. You see, we, we have to understand God's holiness before we can understand God's grace. These were God's chosen people. They were to worship Yahweh. They were to worship God and God alone. And yet they had turned their back. And he was saying, you, you may want to consider this because God cannot be mocked. You see, he came in sternly warning them. He used some very strong language as we just heard Ansley read this morning. But God cannot and will not stand for dishonor and disrespect. He can't. He can't be God if he just sweeps sin and disrespect and dishonor under the rug. He cannot just let it go in the name of tolerance. So Jeremiah comes in repeatedly, repeatedly telling this same story. Turn, repent, turn, repent, turn, repent. Now we fast forward all the way to chapter 30. Jeremiah is still speaking for God. He is still telling people the same message. Turn to God. Repent. Follow after only Yahweh. And this is where we are in the story of the Israelites. That is the shortened version by all means. There's much more to be said about how many times and how many ways the Israelites turned away from God. But they, they turned away from God. This is a recurring theme in the Old Testament where they, they repent. God takes them back. They, they get complacent. They turn away, God warns them, God punishes them, God disciplines them, they turn back over and over again. It made me think, if you were in our MCs this week, it made me think of that exact study, talking about when God is practical and when God makes sense, that's when we'll worship him. When he's doing the things we want him to do or doing them in the way we want him to do them, we're all for worshiping God. But too many times, even in our own New Testament Christian life, we make the decision that we want to worship something or turn away from God because he doesn't seem to be doing it the way I want it done. We turn away to more controllable gods. We turn away to more controllable life aspects and make it about us instead of making it about God. And this is where we are at with the Israelites, and this is where we're at with 21st century Christianity and every year in between. This has been happening. God's people trading him in for lesser gods. See, but God cannot allow betrayal to go unchecked. Furthermore, he cannot do those things and maintain his 
Godness. It's not a word. Pastors are allowed to make up words, though. So if he simply allows his name to be drugged through the mud, he ceases to be a God that I want to worship. Now, I don't like it when he points that discipline towards me, but I love preaching that, yeah, God has to discipline sin. But it's true. God must do that. And this idea takes us back to last week where Pastor Todd preached God's holiness. If you remember, he brought up the fact that God's attributes are not a percentage or a pie chart where it's 50% this and 20% this and 10% and 5% and 2% making up the whole. It is God is 100% holy. He is 100% powerful. He is 100% supreme. He is 100% wrathful. He is 100% just, loving, merciful, grace. All of those things are simply 100% stacked on top of one another and they all go through the lens of each other before they are expressed to his people. So then how are we to look at these verses in Jeremiah and look at the subject of God's grace with that in mind? I think the first step we must do is simply define what is grace. Grace has been defined hundreds if not thousands of different ways over the course of Christianity. I've heard it defined most simplistically in my life as mercy is not getting what you deserve, while grace is getting something you don't deserve. And I think that's a good starting point to, to oversimplify it. This is why so many times mercy and grace are put together or maybe even confused a little bit as being the exact same thing when they're, they're very similar, but they are not the exact same thing. Imagine it this way. Imagine you stole a car, which is not so far-fetched for some of you because I know I know your tendencies in here. So imagine you stole a car. You go to court, and the judge says, look, I know you did it. Everyone knows you did it. You admit that you do it. You are guilty. I'm going to let you go anyway. Go free. That's mercy. That's not getting the punishment you deserve. On your way out of the courthouse, he tosses you the keys to the car you stole, and he says, and keep what you stole. Just keep that car. Head on out. That's grace. That's getting something further that you do not deserve. Now imagine if that's flip-flop though. He throws you the keys and he says, you can keep the car, but you got to go to jail for the rest of your life. The grace did no good, right? Because the mercy was not with it. So we have to understand that mercy and grace are going to, are, they're always going to kind of go together. One almost kind of comes before the other one. See, mercy may save us from punishment, but grace is what gets us to the ultimate good of the gospel. And that's what we are aiming for in this sermon series. And that is what God is aiming for in his word. So today we will be discussing simply this grace of getting something you do not deserve. What we have to understand is God cannot be in a right relationship with us without grace. It is impossible to do without grace. Merriam-Webster that great theologian, defines grace as the free and unmerited favor of God as manifested in the salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessings. So even a secular dictionary defines grace as getting something, getting salvation and getting blessings because neither of those are deserved or earned or merited by us. A.W. Tozer who is the, we've quoted him many, many times at, at this church, many, many times in our uh, MC studies. But his definition is the one that I would like to work from the most this morning. His definition says this, it is that grace is the good pleasure of God 
that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. I'm going to read that again because, again, we'll refer back to it a couple of times. A.W. Tozer says that grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. The entirety of Scripture points us to this. The entirety of Scripture points us to the fact that we are saved by God's grace. It is Him giving us something we do not deserve. He is, he, he is inclined to bestow benefits on us even though we do not deserve it. If God does not move in grace, no matter what other attributes He has, He cannot redeem us. He cannot save us. We cannot have a right relationship with Him without this attribute. You see, if He were to save literally zero people in the history of mankind, He would still be holy. Because that is what we deserve. That is justice. No one can complain they didn't get what they deserve at that moment. And yet, because of God's grace, we see that in His sovereignty, in His holiness, and then in His grace, that He will save many. He will save sinners like you. He will save sinners like me and he will still maintain his holiness he will still maintain his power he will still maintain his sovereignty in all of that ephesians 2 states this plainly says for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is a gift of god which grace by definition is a gift it is something you do not deserve it is a gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast so what we have to understand here, what I, I guess what I've had to understand all week is there is no way possible to exhaustively cover God's grace in one, two, or a thousand sermons. This is literally the entire Bible we are talking about. I would even go so far as to say every sermon you have ever heard, if it preached the gospel faithfully, was about grace. It has to be. Because the gospel is not possible without grace. Anything else is a false gospel. Now there are different avenues they can go down. There are different ways you can explain this. But if you turn to any page in the Bible, Old or New Testament, you are reading about God's grace. J. Gresham Machen, I think is how you pronounce it, says that the very center and core of the whole Bible is the doctrine of the grace of God. This is literally everything in the Bible. So today, I'm not going to try to cover every avenue and every aspect of God's grace. Today, I want us to focus our time on the three tenses of the gospel and how we owe all three of those to God's grace. So, in layman's terms, we will discuss how God's grace saves us how God's grace is saving us, and how God's grace will ultimately and eternally save us. So let's look at Jeremiah again. So turn back there. Just look at some of the ways in the, in the first verses from about 14, 15 to about 19. And some of the ways, your hurt is incurable, your wound is grievous, there is no healing for you, all your lovers have left you, your guilt is is great that's twice your sins are flagrant that is also twice god is clear here they are guilty they have done these things they deserve this punishment these are the past actions of the israelites that led god to divvy out his punishment through the babylonians yes but let make no mistake god takes credit 
God says, I did these things. And in verse 14, he specifically says, I did these things because your guilt is great. This is why I'm doing this. I'm not just being mean. I'm not just being harsh. You deserve worse. This is what I'm doing instead. Again, this points us back to his holiness and his inability to simply overlook sins, especially from his own chosen people in a covenant that he is upholding his end of. He can't just say, ah, it's okay that you're not upholding your end. And we look at the Israelites and we're like, man, they were dumb. I do that every time I read the Bible because I'm like, man, he just part of the Red Sea. He just fed them from the frosted flakes from heaven and the birds just show up dead like, eat me, it's fine. All of these miracles God is doing and the Israelites keep turning their back. And every time I read it, I'm like, man, you are stupid. This is us. It's every one of us in this room. This is definitely your pastor. This pastor. I wasn't talking about Eric. That made it sound like I was like, it's definitely Eric. He's not here. Let's throw him under the bus. That's not what I mean. It's definitely your pastors. Let's just say it that way. But this is us. This is the Israelites. There is no denying that our guilt is great. There is no denying that our sin is flagrant. We know that we repeatedly turn our back on God. We don't like to admit it because it's painful and it hurts. And we don't, we don't want to be those people, right? We want to be the faithful people that are living out their faith every moment of every day. But if we are honest with ourselves, we know this is explaining us. We can look back at our past lives before Christ and even after we turned to Christ and remember too many times that we failed miserably to live up to the standard that God has placed upon His people. And yet, here we sit not smashed into the ground like we deserve, not killed and wrath poured out on us like we deserve. It is by the grace of God we even sit here. It is by grace alone that we sit here. It is the unmerited, undeserved favor of God that has brought us even to the realization that we are sinners, that our guilt is great, that our sin is flagrant. And it is that same exact grace that gives us even the power and the ability to repent from those past sins and turn to Jesus. It is all by grace. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, if we do not perceive our wretchedness and poverty, we will never know how desirable the remedy is that Christ has brought us. We shall never be clothed with righteousness, with the righteousness of Christ, except that we first know assuredly that we have no righteousness of our own. This is the starting point to accepting and loving Jesus. This is the starting point of accepting the grace of God. We have to understand we have nothing good to offer. We have no righteousness of our own. Our sins are flagrant. Our guilt is great. The, the first part of this passage from Jeremiah is us. We have no hope. We have, our pain is incurable. Our wound is grievous. We have nothing to turn to. And it seems hopeless at that point until we realize, as John Piper puts it, we are more sinful than we even imagine. But by God's grace, we are more loved than we have ever dreamed. This is all a work of God. Jeremiah makes it very clear there is nothing that can be done for these fallen Israelites. Their pain is incurable. They have failed to uphold the law perfectly. Now there's nothing that can make them whole again. If you tear a hole in a piece of paper, I don't care how much tape or glue or Elmer's you use, it is not going to be whole again. Jesus must fill that hole. And that's what God is saying here is you have no hope. 
with yourself. But I can give you hope because what my holiness requires, my grace provides. I would say there are plenty of in you in here that need to hear this this morning. You're thinking about your past week or your past month or your past year or whatever. You need to hear you are loved by God today. If you are in Christ, you are loved by God. God loves you. He values you. He delights in you. Not because you're awesome. Not because you deserve it. Not because you've earned anything but God's wrath, but because God is gracious. He delights to show just how gracious He is. It brings Him joy to show His grace to you. It brings Him glory to show His grace to you. Your past is not and cannot be so bad that God's grace won't cover it. And that should bring us joy, knowing that no matter how bad our past is, it can never outrun God's grace. And I know some of you are thinking, but pastor, you, you don't know me. You don't know my past. You weren't around. First of all, there's a couple of you I was around, so that doesn't even fly here. I was with you when you were doing these things. But a lot of you are thinking, man, you don't even know what I've done. You don't know the sins I've committed. You don't know how dark my past really is. Let's look at the screen as we look at the answer to that. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. I want us to, we're going to briefly take in every word of this. First, we have redemption. This is not something we're going to get. This is not something we're hoping to attain. This is not something that God is withholding from us. We have redemption. It is ours. We own it because God has granted it to us. We are guilty. Our guilt is great. And there is nothing that we can do to change that fact. And here's the kicker. There's nothing God can do to change that fact. You will always be guilty. This may just be semantics here. This may just be, oh, I don't like to use that word. I'll use this word instead. But nowhere, nowhere does God say he makes us innocent. He makes us positionally innocent in righteousness. He gives us his righteousness. But if he could just snap his fingers and make our sins as if they never happened, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die to pay for them. There would have been nothing to pay for. It is, we are redeemed. We have redemption. We don't have innocence. We have redemption. We are purchased back from the bondage of our sin. Our guilt is paid for. There is a difference between you don't have a debt to pay and your debt is paid. There is a difference between that. We have redemption. We owed a debt and it is one that we could not and will not ever be able to pay. And yet, we have, we own redemption right now in this very moment if you are in Christ. This purchased uh, for us forgiveness of the very sin that we just talked about, of our whole past, everything that you're thinking of that, man, God couldn't forgive me for that one. It's too much. It's summed up right here. And why? Because he lavished his grace upon us. He gave us so much of a ridiculous amount of grace there is literally no end to it. 
There is no word I can give you that describes the magnitude of His grace. There is no way I can describe to you in 50 sermons how amazing His grace truly is. And He lavishes His grace upon us. It delights Him to give us an abundance of grace. And then I like this last part. In all wisdom and insight... That should give you great comfort because God knew the stupid, idiotic things you were going to do. He knew the stupid, idiotic things that I very much did and enjoyed every minute of. And yet, even before time began, as verse 4 tells us, He still, with all wisdom and insight, knowing all of those things, still chose to save me to exercise His grace to me and to you. He knew all of those things. He knew exactly all of the things you were going to do, and yet, for His name's sake, He saved you anyway, so that in the fullness of time, it might be revealed to us that He chose us in spite of all of our dealings, not because of all of the good things that we can or would do. You have been saved by grace. You are fully, right now, in this moment, if you are in Christ, fully justified in Christ. And he does not regret that decision. I want everyone to to look at me and to really take in what I'm saying. Your sin, your guilt is great. God's grace is greater. You have to get that this morning. I want you to really take that in as you struggle with sin. As you think on all the things that you have done in the past. Some things people don't even know about. You've kept them secret for years. I hope, man, I hope nobody ever finds out about that one. That'll be the straw that broke the camel's back. Nobody will ever think of me the same way again. God's grace is greater than that. You are forgiven. You are justified. Right now in this moment, if you are in Christ, you have redemption for even that. I know you're thinking, well, that all sounds great. I'll, I'll take it. My past sin's forgiven. Cool. But what about today? What about the fact that I sinned on the way here this morning when dude cut me off and didn't use his blinker? Maybe that's just me because blinkers apparently don't work in Bowling Green. I don't know if anybody else has noticed that. Um, But what about day-to-day practical living? So my past sin's paid for. Awesome. Sounds almost too good to be true. I accept. But what about today? What about tomorrow? What about when I know something's around the corner? Let's first look back to Jeremiah, verses 18 and 19. It says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Then what will happen? Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. We see here that God is promising to restore his people to what they used to be when they were following him. But what will follow that? Praise, worship, day-to-day living that will point people back to him. They will go back to living day-to-day for him so that his name is proclaimed in the nations. This is what grace brings to us. We see in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. So what's this being saved all about? I thought you just told me 
that I was fully saved, I fully redeemed, I had all of those things, right? Yes, we are fully saved. You are saved in an instant. You go from unredeemed to redeemed in one second. You go from unsaved to saved in one second. Non-believer to believer in one second. In the blink of an eye, you place your faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you are saved. Positionally, you are completely and totally justified. You have redemption. But we also still have a life to live, right? We still have Mondays. We still have Friday nights. We still have all of these things where we have to live out this faith day to day. We have to be obedient. Habakkuk 2.4 clearly states the righteous shall live by faith. James very clearly points out your works will follow your faith. Faith without works is dead. There is a reason why if you ask the average citizen enough what it takes to be a Christian or how do you get to heaven, most of their answers are do good deeds, be a good person, love God, follow his rules, all of these things. When we know the truth is we can't do that. We can't follow his rules well enough, so we know that it must be something else. And this is why many people, even in church, believe that grace is a New Testament-only issue. That the law was given just so people would follow it and earn their way to heaven back then. But if you read those portions of Scripture, I can see, and only those portions, I can see how that may get twisted around. But if you look at the whole of Scripture, you see something totally different. You see the gospel of grace empowering you to live out those commands. It is by grace that daily obedience is possible at all. It is God's grace that is giving you those desires. Take a look on the screen one more time. Um, Again, I think there's more. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul here is talking about how he should be considered the least of all the apostles. He never even met Jesus in person while he was an earthly minister. He met him on the road to Damascus when he, Jesus appeared to him after Jesus had already left, right? So Paul is saying, because of that, I didn't go through the ministry with Jesus. I was against him at that time, actually. I didn't even like him. And yet, here God is using me anyway. I worked harder than any of them to plant churches, make the name of Jesus spread, all of these things. But then after all that work, he says, but it's only by God's grace I even wanted to do those things. It is only by God's grace instilled in me that I had the desire to be obedient. God is gracious. His grace gives us what we do not deserve. But too many times we belittle that what we do not deserve as material wealth and blessings in our day-to-day or just day-to-day satisfaction, happiness. I just want to be happy. I just want my kids to be happy. Do not belittle God's grace to make it so small. God's grace is, gives us the wherewithal and the desire to even carry out His commands, to be obedient to Him. He gives us new desires. He makes us new creations that want to carry His name forth like Paul. 2 Thessalonians 1, 1 or 11 through 12, I think it's also on the screen. It says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good, and ev- for good and every work of faith by His power. Here again we see Paul stating that it is God that makes us worthy and it is God that gives us the resolve to act out good works. 
But then the very next sentence, he tells us why. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. So that, always important. If you see those two words in Scripture, pay attention to what comes next. Because it's saying we do these things for this reason. So that we can glorify the name of the Lord. We are given blood-bought obedience for one reason. And it is to point people back to the one that bought us. To the one whose blood paid for our sins. Our obedience is not to pat us on the back or to make us feel better. It is to point people to Jesus who gives us the desire to be obedient. And then he tells us how it's all made possible. According to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. This is all empowered by grace. This is desire is not something we even deserve to have. We, shouldn't even, we don't even deserve the desire to follow after God. And yet he instills it upon us or within us because of the richness of his grace. He has so much of it. It overflows out of him and onto us. And it's all so we can then show it so that we can point to the one who gives it and make his name famous. Now this does not give us a license to sin. There's a whole section that I've cut out just due to time. Hopefully we all understand it's not, God's gracious, I can do what I want, okay? That's not true. I'm not going to go into a lengthy explanation as to why that's not true. But... It does free us from the bondage of perfectionism and trying to measure up to God. If I thought I had anything to do with my desire to be obedient, I wouldn't sleep a wink. If I thought on my shoulders was y'all's salvation that I'm preaching to here today or the program Living Guys where I work, I, I don't, not sleeping would be the least of my worries. I wouldn't have any sanity left thinking that the weight of that is somehow on me. Or even my own salvation. Take everyone out of it. If I thought my own salvation was somehow dependent on how well I carry this out, I would never sleep. God's grace not only empowers us to be obedient, but it also allows us to not be mastered by the perfectionism of trying to measure up to God. So let me free some of you right now. I hope this truly does. I want you to really get it. You will never, ever, 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 measure up to God that doesn't mean you don't stop that you stop trying to be obedient it means you rely on the grace that God has given you to want to be obedient but too many of us live beat down joyless lives because of the fact that we sin all the time and God's going to be so mad at me instead it should give us great joy to know that God's grace gives us the desire to care that I sin all the time because if you look at the world, they're sinning all the time. They don't seem to be too beat up by it. They seem to be enjoying every second of it. God's grace has given us the desire to even care. So when the devil tries to trip you up, when the devil tries to cause you to doubt in the abundance of God's grace, every one of us has heard this whisper in our ear, God couldn't save you. Really, you did that again? Would a Christian act that way? Would a follower of Jesus have just done that? You must not even be. God can't save you. You know what? There was a limit, and you were good. But now you've crossed that line. God's not going to save you. It's one too many. It's one too many sins. The devil wants nothing more than to hold you in despair that because you are too sinful, Christ could never save you. And the, picture, the scriptural picture of God's grace tells us a much different story. 
As I prepared this week, I ran across a quote from Martin Luther I've never read before. Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation we just celebrated, I don't know, three, four weeks ago, whatever it was. He said this, When Satan tells me that I am a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably because Christ died for sinners. What great news. I'm a sinner, and that's who Christ died for. That is the, I, I don't even know how to make that any better. So fellow struggler, like me. Fellow people pleaser, like me. Fellow, I don't want to disappoint anyone ever for any reason, even if I have just met you, like me. On the days when you just can't seem to help yourself or you struggle with the sin that you thought long ago you had put behind you, I'll never do that one again and it creeps up and snags you from out of nowhere. As we sing this song, I want you to hear these lyrics. We sing this song here. I don't know if we're singing it today. But before the throne of God, it says, When Satan tempts me to despair, reminds me of the guilt within Upward I look to see him there who made an end of all my sin. So when Satan tells you you're not good enough, go, I know. And that makes me happy because Christ is. Christ is good enough. And I'm okay with relying on his works and not my own. You will never measure up on your own. And yet, because we know of the never-ending waterfall of God's abundant grace purchased on the cross, that we will never not measure up. Christian in here, you will never measure up on your own, but Christian in here, you will never not measure up because Christ measured up for you. And you can rest in that grace today and know there is nothing you can do to change it or lose it. And how do we know this? Because it is God who is faithful to uphold us. Let us look one last time at Jeremiah 30. First, quickly just look at verses 17 through 21. Just skim through there and Look at all the times the word I is in there referring to God. I will restore. I will heal. Verse 18, I will restore fortunes. Verse 19, I will multiply. I will make them honored. Verse 21, I will make him draw near. God is the one carrying this grace out and being faithful to his promises. Therefore, we do not fear that it's going to run out or he's going to change his mind. It's his promise. Why would he make a promise just to change his mind? But grace is not the ultimate reward or blessing. Salvation is not the ultimate reward or blessing. Yes, we get that. Yes, we receive that. But verse 22 tells us what is the greatest benefit. What is the benefit bestowed? This is going back to the definition from Tozer. What is the benefit bestowed on us as undeserving people? Verse 22. You shall be my people and I will be your God. That is the ultimate reward. God is the ultimate reward. Not His grace. It is God Himself. Remember all the way back to the first sermon of this series. The sermon was entitled, God is the Gospel. The purpose of that was to remind us that the good of the good news is not the blessings we receive through the Gospel. The good of the good news is that we receive God Himself. That is the reward. We see this summed up here in Jeremiah 30, verses 22. After all of their sin, undeniably their sin was great undeniably it was flagrant undeniably they knew they had spit in God's face over and over and over again and yet God is still their God and they are still his people Romans 5 9 
says, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So we've looked at past sins, we've looked at present grace, now future grace. We have hope in our future salvation because we know that it depends not on us but on God's grace being poured out on us. We have assurance because we know it is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ and nothing can change a finished work. It is done. It is finished. Nothing can change that. So when you feel like you are having doubts, when you feel like your faith isn't strong enough to sustain you, may you turn back to Scripture where it tells you that your faith is not strong enough to sustain you. But Christ says, Jesus' obedience is strong enough Jesus' cross is strong enough to hold you. God's grace is strong enough to hold you. The Gospel of John says that it is He holding us and no one, including ourselves, can snatch us out of His hand. We are not stronger than God. So when you doubt that you are saved, may you turn back to Scripture and ask yourself, do I believe in the finished work of the cross? And if you do, then you are still in His hand, even when you don't feel like it. John Piper puts it this way, to trust in past grace means to draw from it confidence in future grace. In other words, if we truly believe the promise that our past sins can be redeemed and paid for by God in His graciousness, then why would we not believe that our future salvation and eternal destiny is also secure in Christ? He promises us that nothing has ever been more secure because He is holding it there. So as we wrap up today, we have simply scratched the very surface of God's grace. But as we do that, I pray that this will instill a joy in us that while guilty, while more sinful than we ever care to admit, we are more loved than we ever dreamed because God is gracious. As we scratch the surface of God's grace today, I pray that we rest in God's grace to sustain us day by day. Remembering that it is His grace that is carrying us along to be obedient to Him so that His name can be made famous. As we have scratched the surface of God's grace today, may we trust and know that it is He that is upholding His covenant and holding on to us. May we have blessed assurance that God will never run out of grace. You see, in all of these avenues, God is saying the exact same thing. He's saying, as you look back at your sketchy and sinful past, we know how bad it was. We don't have to go into it. He, he knows. As we look at your sketchy and sinful past, he is saying, I chose you before time began, so I was your God and you were my people. As you look at your present and see in so many ways that you are not living up to the things that you claim to be living up to and the faith that you claim to have and you are failing miserably every day, remember these words and believe them today that God is your God and you are his people. And as you look at your future and the uncertainty and the doubts and the question, may you trust in God's promise that He will eternally be your God and you will eternally be His people. May we believe and trust in past grace. May we live and rest in present grace. And may we have lasting hope in future grace, courtesy of the cross of Jesus. Knowing our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification, those are the three tenses are all bound up in this attribute of God that we will never fully understand. We will never fully know, but we also know that we'll never be extinguished. It is all about Him. 
It is all about His grace. We offer nothing but empty hands and even emptier promises that we promise we'll stay with you, and yet it is Him who is holding us. May this lead us to offer our lives and our worship. You don't have to measure up to accept it. You don't have to measure up to keep it. You don't have to measure up to complete it. You just have to trust in the one who has promised to make you his people and promised to be your God. This is the good news of the gospel. Now to close, I want to read from this book, The Valley of Vision. It's just a collection of Puritan prayers. It is a great and handy guide or a kind of a sidekick to your prayer life. Uh, if you want to just read through these and then pray on your own, I just want to read a portion of one of these as we really take in the words here, as we really think about God's past, present, and future grace. It says, O supreme moving cause, thou dost not move men like stones, but dost endue them with life. Not to enable them to move without thee, but in submission to thee, the first mover. O Lord, I am astonished at the difference between my receivings and my deservings. Between the state I am now in and my past gracelessness. Between the heaven I am bound for and the hell I merit. Who made me to differ but thee? For I was no more ready to receive Christ than were others. I could not have begun to love thee hadst thou not first loved me or been willing unless thou had first made me so. Oh, that such a crown should fit the head of such a sinner. Such high advancement be for an unfruitful person. Such joys for so vile a rebel. Listen to this so closely. Let wrath deserved be written on the door of hell but the free gift of grace on the gate of heaven. I know that my sufferings are the result of my sinning, but in heaven both shall cease. May we praise God this morning for His grace. Not because grace is something God does, because grace is something God is. This is why we know it will never run out. This is why we know He will never stop giving it. He literally can't stop giving it. And that is the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I come to you knowing that my sin is great. My sin is flagrant. I am guilty. 